Thanks, Luke. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Yeah, I was reminded this morning uh, as we were studying our, our Sunday school lesson that uh, how many volunteers we have serving in this church. Um, whether you know it or not, everybody up on this stage is volunteering their time, uh, giving of their gifts. Luke, the praise team. We have two praise teams, one that's here in February, one that was here last month, and they rotate throughout the year, all volunteers. We, we pay Tom, he's on staff, but not to be our drummer. Uh, but, but how many people uh, volunteer their time in this church, and for which I'm, I'm deeply indebted and very grateful for. We should all be uh, grateful for the time that they spend, the energy that they spend serving people in the children's building, all, all over this place, um, throughout the week, but especially on Sunday, that, that volunteer. Uh, we're grateful. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. We're in a, a very interesting moment in our culture where cultural Christianity is a normal thing. It's very common. Uh, cultural Christianity is a cultural Christian is someone who, who wears the label of Christian, but mostly because their family background their upbringing has given them that label of Christian. When it comes to the, the works of Jesus, they're big into, typically, the works of Jesus, but want little to do with the vast majority of His teaching. They care little for the worship of Jesus, and little for the change to be evident in their life of bearing the name Christian. Some years ago, I, I met with a friend of mine who we, we, we met every month in a coffee shop, and the goal was specifically stated that every month we met, we would talk about the gospel, that he and I stood on opposite sides of the fence, and every month we were going to come together on a Saturday morning and over coffee talk about Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and the implications of that on our life. Now, if you were to hear from either one of us, both of us would tell you that we were Christians. But my friend is, what he would say, married to a man. He is, has no desire to live out what it means to be a confessing Christian in the world but he would tell you he is a Christian. As he laid out his beliefs to me, the best way I could describe it would sound something like a combination of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Christianity. All the while, for the entire year, he swore, look, Michael, we're on the same boat, we're going to the same destination. We're both going to make it. You don't need to worry about me. This past week, we even had uh, the Christian theologian, Lady Gaga, come out and proclaim herself to be a Christian. I don't know about you, but I love her commentary on the book of Hebrews. It's so good. Lady Gaga, who wrote perhaps the anthem for our cultural moment, Born This Way. In which she says, no matter gay, straight, or bi, lesbian, transgendered life, 
I'm on the right track. The question that we have to really wrestle with as we read our Bibles is, is Jesus as open-minded as our culture would, believe, would have us believe Him to be? Is Jesus as open-minded as they say He is? In our passage this morning, we have two candidates coming to Jesus, both of which receive what amounts to a very terse response from Jesus. You might even say both are rejected, it seems like. But it tells us what Christ is looking for in a disciple. What is Jesus looking for in a disciple? Well, this passage tells us. Now, the question that you have to ask yourself is, does your following of Christ come with strings attached? As you follow Christ, are there strings attached? With that in mind, let's look at our text this morning. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds have the air, uh, birds of the air have, have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. In the last three passages in Matthew, we saw three miracle stories. The first one was an unclean leper who came up to Jesus in the middle of the crowd and asked him for healing. And we were faced with the question when that leper came up, what will Jesus do? What is he going to do in this moment? And we saw right there that Jesus, uh, uh, disregarding his own cleanliness, reached out, touched the head of the leper, and cleansed him. And what we saw is that the leper's defilement didn't transfer over to Jesus. Quite the opposite. Jesus' holiness and cleanliness transferred down to the leper. And then we saw the, the week after that, the faith of the centurion who came up to Jesus on behalf of his paralyzed servant. And he asked Jesus for healing of his servant. But he also recognized in that moment that Jesus didn't have to come to his house to heal his servant. In fact, Jesus had the power and the authority to heal his servant from a distance. So he believed that Jesus had the authority of God himself. That he could simply say that the, the, the servant would be healed and only to, avoid, to say that word, the illness, would leave the servant from a distance. And then two weeks ago, we saw Jesus heal Peter's mother-in-law who immediately then got up and was fully restored to life. Then, as if that weren't enough, Jesus heals the rest of the people in the community. They're bringing him the sick. They're bringing him those possessed by demons. And he's sitting, what amounts to being in a house, just healing people as they come in. And so we've seen the demonstration of the power of the kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming. The power of the kingdom of God then transcends the power of the world. The power of illness and sickness. Now this week, the narrator is going to change gears a little bit. 
He's going to change from, from stories of miracles, of miraculous occurrences of everyday people to the authority of, of, uh, of Jesus over who is considered to be his disciple. This scene is, is one of the few in the book of Matthew where Jesus seems to be very blunt, let's say, in his response to these people that are potential disciples of his. But I think he has good reason to be. So we have in this scene two potential disciples and two responses that Jesus gives to them. So we've got two points in the sermon that follow each uh, disciple as they come up to Jesus and his response. And what it shows us is what it means to follow Jesus as his disciple. What does it mean to truly be a disciple? The first thing that I want you to see is that following Jesus means counting the cost. Following Jesus means counting the cost. Look at verses 18 to 20. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So there's this crowd and it's gathering around Jesus. And so he decides to get the heck out of Dodge, right? So he's, he's packing up the disciples, and they're leaving. And we see Jesus do this on occasion, where the crowd gathers around, and he'll pack up, and he'll leave, and he'll go to a remote place. And we're not told exactly why, but in some other passages of Scripture, when he does this, it's typically because people want, are trying to make him king, or they're trying to kill him. It's usually one or the other. But in, in this case, he's just sat in a house, and he's been healing people left and right. So it's with pretty good reason we could assume that the people are starting to crowd around. There's probably a buzz going about the crowd where they're really anticipating making this guy king. Hey, look at, look at what he's doing for us. He's healing all of our illnesses. He's doing all of these sorts of things. What would stop us from following him rather than Caesar? And so the crowd, it seems to be, is probably getting pretty rowdy, and there's a crowd gathering around, and so Jesus decides to pick up and go. Now, Jesus and his disciples are headed where? They're headed to the town of Gadara, or to the, the area of the Gadarenes, which is on the complete opposite side of the lake. You see there in verse uh, 18 where he says they're going to the other side. And we'll see in a couple of weeks that they will end up in the land of the Gadarenes. They're right now on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee in the town of Capernaum. And they're headed to the other side of the lake, which is literally the complete opposite side from the northwest to the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. So they're headed to the complete opposite side. Now, Gadara was a Greek city, and the area of the Gadarenes was a Gentile conglomerate of cities. It was, it was part of a Gentile conglomerate of cities. And what that translates to is this is mostly Gentile territory that they're headed to. And now we've already seen that Jesus has no problem touching a leper. He seems to have no problem about going into the house of a Gentile. And so Jesus is leading his disciples into the land of the Gadarenes. And we're going to see some amazing things that he does here. But the point in laying all this out is to say that the area that they're going to is going to be less than welcoming to Jesus and his disciples. You can know that for sure. Which raises the question, why would a scribe want to go? 
doesn't it? Here's a scribe that comes up to Jesus. Why would a scribe want to go? They're going into the land of Gentiles. A scribe knows that he can't associate with Gentiles. Scribes were essentially lawyers in their day. They were experts on interpreting the Jewish law. And the scribes throughout the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, are critical of Jesus' ministry. They accuse him of violations, of breaking the law all the time on a number of occasions. He works on the Sabbath. Well, he forgives sins. No one has the authority to forgive sins. That's blasphemy. He doesn't follow the ceremonial washings of his hands and of the pots that the food is served in. Why? Because those pots have touched Gentiles. Those hands have touched things that Gentiles and unclean people have touched. Why don't you and your disciples wash your hands? The scribes are levying these critiques against Jesus all throughout the Gospels to the point where we actually see in Mark 2.16 where it says there, uh, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Scribes have a problem with Jesus associating with unclean people. Well, here we have an interesting part of the story because here, a scribe that actually accepts, or or at least somewhat accepts, Jesus and his ministry. This scribe is clearly in the minority when it comes to people of his ilk, other scribes. But it's rather surprising that he wants to join up with where Jesus is going, knowing that he's heading into Gentile territory. He may not know that, but we certainly do. The reason that I think these details are important is because it gives us a larger picture of the kind of person that we're dealing with. But ultimately, it's his statement to Jesus that helps complete this picture. It becomes evident but how he states, uh, he makes his statement or asks his question that he has failed to consider what kind of mission Jesus is actually on and what he's going to do there. Now, most of our translations in verse 19 read, Teacher, I will follow where you go. But the more likely translation that some have suggested is something more like, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you may be going away to. In other words, to the next stop. So the meaning of his statement that he's saying to Jesus is tantamount to when your your kids ask if they can go to work with you when you're leaving the house. Anybody ever had this happen? You're, You're getting ready to leave the house and your kids come up to you and they're like, Daddy, can we go to work with you? I have small children, six, four, and two, and that's what they ask me. Can can I go to work with you? Because I think in their minds, they think you're leaving the house and all the fun is where you're going. There was a time when I asked my oldest, who was then about three, what I did for a living. And he said, I push buttons for a living. All he ever saw me do is work on a computer. I said, son, I, I do push buttons, but not in the way that you're thinking about it. <laughs> it's truer than you know from the mouth of babes. <laughs> but, but in their mind, you're going to experience life in the fullest. You're going away, and where you're going is where the fun is, and I want to follow you there. And it appears that this scribe has encountered teaching from Jesus that perhaps he's never heard before. 
he seems to be seeing some things that Jesus is doing, and he's intrigued. He's healing people. I've never seen people do that. He comes in and he, he teaches with one who has authority. I've never heard some of the things that he's saying. And he calls Jesus teacher, which in Hebrew is equivalent to the term rabbi. Now here's an important part about that. In the book of Matthew, anytime the word rabbi or teacher is used, it's typically by someone who is on the outside of Jesus' ministry. Except for two cases where the word rabbi is used, and it is by the same disciple, and I bet you'll never guess who it is. Judas Iscariot. It's telling. He comes up and he says, Teacher! The understanding of this scribe seems to be that Jesus is going to go to village to village. He's going to be teaching people. He's going to be healing people of their illnesses. And hey, that's a mission that I could endure. I could do that. I could be a part of this. I could stand to listen to a little bit more of what Jesus is having to say. And that's not to mention the vast crowds that are going to be around, the attention that he's going to be attracting. And so maybe it would be more like children asking to go to work with their father, and their father happens to be John Bon Jovi, or whoever you kids are listening to these days. Is it the journey? I don't know. Uh, he evidently has an attraction to the ministry of Jesus, but he hasn't considered what Jesus' ministry is really about. What it would cost him to follow Jesus as his disciple. And this is evidently the way we should understand his statement because of the way Jesus responds to him. Listen to the way Jesus responds to him. He says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, if that's not trying to give this guy insight into what Jesus' ministry is really about, I don't know what kind of statement is. In other words, you've seen part of the ministry that I'm doing. You've seen me healing people. You've heard teaching. You've seen the crowds. But you have no idea what's involved. You have no idea what's really going on here. Further, you have no idea where this is headed. You fail to consider what things you would have to give up in order to follow me. Jesus is headed into a village of Gentiles. And while there's good reason to believe that Jesus had a house in Capernaum, he definitely stayed with some of his disciples who were there. The place they're headed to is going to render them sleeping outside in the elements. The cost of following Jesus is going to leave him without a home or without a pillow to lay his head on at night. Have you considered what it's like to follow me? I was in Southeast Asia with a small group of people, and we were sharing the gospel in a local university. And the students that we had met there had never heard the gospel before. Never heard the gospel before. They'd, they'd never even heard of Jesus. Didn't even know his name. One student in particular was from Tibet, and his parents were Tibetan Buddhists, which is a, a particularly 
strong form of Buddhism, a, a particularly devout version of Buddhism. And so after hearing the gospel and really understanding that he needed to respond to this message, he said, I, I understand what you're saying. This is near a quote as I can remember. He said, I understand what you're saying. And I think what you're saying is true. But you have to understand, if I go home and tell my family that I believe in Jesus, they're going to disown me. I'm not going to have anywhere to live. My family will reject me completely. And then he literally said, before I commit to this, I have to count the cost. We're certainly not told what the response was that the scribe gave to Jesus after this statement. But remember, Matthew is giving a cue to the reader here. You're the one that's supposed to ask the question. It doesn't really matter what this potential disciple, this scribe's response to Jesus was. It doesn't really matter what his response was. If it did, Matthew would have told us. The question is implied to you by telling you, by asking you the question, what is your response? In America, the cost of following Christ is certainly not what it is in other countries. The question we all need to regularly ask ourselves is at what point am I out? At what point am I done? A serious question. Really asking yourself, looking in the mirror and saying, at what point am I done? Look, when this happens, I'm out. At what point is that? At what point is the cost of following Jesus just simply too steep? Is it physical persecution? Social capital? Is it the loss of friends? Is it the making of enemies? The loss of profits in a business? At what point is the cost of following Jesus too much to bear? And be honest with yourself. See, your answer to that question is contingent on how you actually answer the question that comes as a result from Jesus' next encounter. Depending on how you answer this upcoming question is how you'll answer the question I just asked. This is the second point that I want you to see. Following Jesus means rightly assessing his worth. Following Jesus means rightly assessing his worth. Look at verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So another person comes up to Jesus and he's expressing his desire to follow him. But he tells him, look, first, let me go bury my father. Now, we don't know much about this person, but the text calls him a disciple. Now, we might be inclined to think of a particular small group of individuals also called disciples, but really it's a generic term, and it just means a learner who follows a teacher. That's all a disciple really is. Now, we of course know the 12 disciples. Matthew's going to call them out in a couple of chapters. In chapter 10 of this very gospel, he's going to call out the disciples. He says in chapter 10, verse 1, and he called to him his 12 disciples. 
But in the very next verse, he says, the name of the twelve apostles are these. And he goes on to name this same group that he just called disciples. He then calls apostles. And so a disciple is a learner. An apostle is one who is sent. And the twelve disciples are often also referred to as apostles, ones sent by Jesus specifically. But then there's another group that seldomly really talked about. We only get hints of it here and there, but we get one hint of it in the entire chapter, really, of Luke chapter 10, where he says in verse 1, he identifies this group, and he says, The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And later in the chapter, he'll refer to them as disciples. Jesus will talk to them as disciples. So we have Jesus, who is this itinerant speaker. He's going from town to town, and he sends out ahead of him these 70-plus disciples that go on ahead of him, and they start sort of warming up the crowd, so to speak. They're putting up posters, handing out flyers, selling merch. They're doing all those kinds of things to help get people ready for when Jesus, the itinerant speaker, comes in and preaches. They're preaching the same message that Jesus is then going to come in and preach and probably follow it up with miracles and different things like that. He even gives them instructions on what to do if the town doesn't receive them. They leave. And this probably is a sign to Jesus. We're not going into that town. Imagine being a citizen of a town that misses Jesus because a bunch of knuckleheads around you rejected the people that came before. Right? So it's probable that these disciples help Jesus determine what towns he'll visit next. So this group of 70 uh, it probably ha has uh, some of the, the, the ministry partners that we end up seeing in Acts. Some of the people that join Paul and the rest of the apostles as they go out, people like Barnabas and, and so on, are probably close associates or at least a part of this group of, of 70, this wider group of disciples. But the point is that they've joined along Jesus' teaching ministry as he's gone along, and he's collected some of these along the way. So who is this guy? that's identified to us as a disciple that comes up to Jesus. He's probably a member of the wider group. And the reason I say that is because of the generic information that we get about him. I would think that if it was one of the twelve who later became the apostles, it would probably be called out the name. So I'm figuring he's probably, it's an assumption, but I figure he's probably part of this wider group that's referred to as disciples. But this disciple tells Jesus, what does he say to him? He says, let me first go bury my father. Now, this seems like a normal request. Am I the only one who looks at that request and is like, well, that seems reasonable. Your dad's on his deathbed and you're going to go bury him. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's what you should do. Now, some have even suggested that his dad was already dead and he was waiting till his body decayed and actually put his bones into a bone box a year later. That's the process that Jews would go through. And so uh, what would be a normal custom is for the, the oldest child of the family, the oldest son of the family, to stay behind, to wait and take care of their parents as they're, they're aging and see through the funeral arrangements and become essentially what is what we would call today the executor of the will. That was a, a normal process. And this was all part of carrying out a commandment. Honor your father and mother. 
So then what's with Jesus' response to this poor guy? He just wants to go bury his father. It seems cold-blooded for Jesus' response, at least on the surface. But what is Jesus saying? Well, the dead he's talking about here are those that remain outside of the kingdom of God. And what Jesus commands him instead is, follow me. What mission is Jesus taking him on? Ask yourself that question. What mission is Jesus taking him on? Well, the mission is to go and give the kingdom of God to those who are currently without it. Those who are currently in darkness and headed to hell. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that giving the news of the kingdom of God to those that are currently in darkness is more important than family obligations. But listen, those that are inside the kingdom of God understand that. Those that are outside don't. What's happened here in the disciple's mind is that he has failed to assess Jesus' value rightly. He doesn't understand what following Jesus is really worth. How do you choose between two goods? Two things that are good. How do you choose between two good things? You choose the one that's more valuable to you. Plain and simple. You choose the one that's more valuable to you. Let's, just, let's pretend you're at work. You're at work and you get a call that there's a tragedy that's just happened at your house and you have to get over there as soon as you can. So you leave work. You bolt out the door, you get in your car, and you drive as fast as you can. And along the way, you see on the side of the road a stranded motorist. Do you stop and render aid? No. Why? Well, it's not because stopping to help a motorist isn't a good thing. Of course it's a very good thing. The issue is, at home, there is a more urgent matter. There's a matter that is more valuable to you. All right, but now let's assume that that's not a stranded motorist. Let's replace it with something else. What could possibly be on the road between your work and your home that would make you stop voluntarily? Nothing. Nothing. Not even red lights or stop signs. Nothing. Because what's at home is more valuable. So understand, Jesus is stepping into that scenario and he's saying, following me. That's the only thing more valuable. Following me has more value than going home. Following me is more urgent. Following me takes precedence. It seems like a harsh statement, but Jesus is going to make other very harsh statements along these same lines. Listen to what he says in Matthew 10, 37 to 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, in Matthew 19, 29, and 30, he says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last be first. And he says this in Matthew 13, 44 to 46, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Every last possession. Doesn't say that, that's just my insertion. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You get it? Jesus is saying that there is a cost to in being his disciple. And the amount you are willing to pay to be a disciple depends on how valuable you find the Savior. You understand that? The amount you're willing to pay depends on how valuable you find the Savior. Brothers and sisters, this is what true conversion really is. It's more than merely saying, I believe. It's more than merely just getting into the waters of baptism. Salvation is not so mere that a person can be a disciple of Jesus by simply acknowledging him with their lips and then walking out the door and denying him by, his, by their lifestyle. There's fruit that's produced from the life of the follower of Jesus because what the follower has found in Jesus is a gift more valuable than all of the gold in the world. J.C. Ryle puts it like this. Nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of experience. Either you see the value of Jesus or you don't. Either you have eyes that have been opened to see the treasure of salvation or you don't. I say it every week as a reminder to the believers in the room, but as also as, as breaking news to anyone who hasn't heard that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he came and lived a perfect life, a life that you and I never could live. Yeah. See, there is a God who is righteous and he's the judge over all. And his kingdom will only be filled by those as righteous as he is. Think about that just for a moment. His kingdom will only be filled by people as righteous as he is. Doesn't Jesus tell us earlier on, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. His kingdom will be filled only by those who are as righteous as he is. But the problem is, once the flesh and blood human race had tasted sin, we became worthy of death and worthy of a kingdom entirely apart from him. Worthy of a kingdom without him. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, sent this Jesus for the purpose of living that righteous life that you and I never could. Untainted by fallenness. Untainted by sin. He was fully deserving of the kingdom of God. Fully deserving of all of its rewards due to his righteousness. But did he take the rewards for himself? Did he squander them? Did he hold on to them? Did he say they're rightfully mine? I've earned them? No, he didn't. Instead, he went to the cross and took the wrath of God on his own shoulders, the wrath that you and I deserved. Now he offers to make you a new creation. Not one born of flesh and blood, but one born by the Spirit. See, the flesh and blood man, that kind of creature, remember, he's fallen. He's part of a different kingdom, a kingdom that's apart from God. No, no, no. He's offered to make you a creature not born by flesh and blood, but a new creation born by the Spirit of God. And it's precisely this kind of creature, one born by the Spirit of God, who has his eyes opened by that same Spirit to see the real value of Christ. And once he sees the value, then committing his life to following this Christ... But we love to hang our hats on the external things. On those flesh and blood things. And we make them the weightier matters. We love to say things, yeah, but my my little Johnny, he was baptized once. I was sitting right there, I saw him get in the water. He got baptized. But now little Johnny is big Johnny. He wouldn't darken the door of a church if you paid him. Instead, he'd rather fill his mind with the things of the world. Parents, let me ask you. Does this sound like a disciple who wants to follow Jesus with his very life? Or does it sound like someone who's saying, let me go, let me go take care of some things I'll catch up with you later. Sounds like the latter to me. Now I get it. When it comes to our children, we want to hope for the best. We want to believe the best. And we want to hang our hats on that baptism or something, whatever it is. We want to take, just hang our hat on that. At least it gives me some comfort and some security. Parents, listen to me. We need to be clear-eyed in regards to our children. We need to be clear-eyed in regards to our children. And ask yourself, really, does this person see the value of Christ or do they not? 
Is this person willing to lay down his life to follow Christ, or is he not? That seems to be the, the price that Jesus is putting on discipleship in this passage and in all the rest of the passages in the gospel. If they don't, then your time is best spent preaching the gospel to them every time you see them. It's not a time to be glassy-eyed and hope for the best. It's a time to be realistic, properly assess, and address the issue. There are no doubt others in this congregation who are here this morning Normally, the things of God bore you. They're tiresome. Can't believe anybody is attracted to this kind of thing. Can't, anybody, can't believe anybody would like to do this. Singing and all of this. Listening to this guy drone on forever and ever. Feels like a day. Normally, they bore you. And you, you don't really know why you're here. Or maybe you're here because a parent or a spouse dragged you along. But I want you to understand sitting in our pew, no more changes your stance before God than sitting in a booth at McDonald's makes you a chicken McNugget. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't change anything about who you are. It's a question of value. When you look at Christ, what do you see? One of the challenges in the church in America is when you live in a free and prosperous society, it's difficult to tell the value that people are placing on Christ. Because really, the social cost is very low to follow Jesus. 50 cents. Who didn't have 50 cents they can throw away once a Sunday, once a week on Sunday. So many people are willing to value Christ 50 cents worth, and that's about what they have to pay, social capital-wise, in America. See, none of us are afraid at this very moment that those doors are going to burst open and that police officers are going to come in and haul us all away to jail for worshiping Christ. None of us are afraid of that. The cost is low. But as the social cost rises, you start to see the difference in the people that really value Christ and the ones that don't. The ones who have found their treasure hidden in a field. See, there's nothing that persecutors could do. There's no weapon that they've got that could force the true disciple to go back on his confession. There's no cost that he wouldn't pay. There's no father that he would rather bury. There's no ground he wouldn't sleep on to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. See, friends, this is the cost of discipleship. And it's astonishingly high. But the disciples of Christ will pay it precisely because this is the value of the Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how difficult when we read the words of Scripture, how difficult it seems it is to follow. 
Yet your word assures us that your burden is easy. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, we pray for help. You've given to us your spirit precisely for that reason to help us. Lord, there's no doubt some in this room struggling with their own sins right now. Realizing the cost of following you. Whether that be burdens of animosity and forgiveness, burdens of temptation that they're pursuing or trying not to pursue, whatever it is, it's in their minds right now, it's ever before them. And every word they read of Scripture, every time they hear a preacher, every song they sing, they're reminded of it. I pray that you would lift that burden from them. Give them freedom. Allow them to give in to truly following you as a disciple. Paying every cost down to the last penny. In order to follow you. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room. As we grow as a church together. That you would help to unify us by your spirit and through your word. Anything that lays between us would be put to rest. To realize that it's incompatible with following Christ as his disciple. Give us freedom there too. In Jesus' name, amen.